Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Like the one we're in and dealing with this kind of a pandemic. I mean, we, we are learning as we're going. And, and the more we learn, the more it's going to be able to to shape our responses and, and understand what we need to do next and whether we're making progress. Now, we don't have the benefit of hindsight, obviously, and, and we can look back and say, well, maybe we should have done this differently. Maybe it would have been good to know what we know now if we knew it then. That, that's, not, that's not possible, obviously, but it's, it's about learning as we go and, and making the decisions that, that are based on the best evidence we have available. Now, there, there's going to be, there has certainly been a debate, there's going to continue to be a debate about whether we're overreacting or whether we're underreacting. Now, you could certainly make a case that it's much better to, to look back and say, okay, we overreacted versus, well, turns out we underreacted and things ended up being a lot worse than, than maybe they needed to be. But obviously, at the same time, we're trying to balance you know, the pu- public health side of this with the economic impact of, of all of these shutdowns and, and you know, the long-term implications if that has to drag on. But, I mean, this virus isn't going to, to go away either, at least not in the short term. So how best to, to mitigate its impact, limit its spread? And, again, how are we going to know what success looks like? So joining us to, to explore some of these questions, uh, very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, uh, Professor uh, Ross uh, Upshur joins us. He's at the University of Toronto, a public health expert. Um, a physician, also a scholar around the ethics and history of global health emergencies, uh, was uh, on the front lines of the uh, SARS crisis uh, some years ago. Professor Upshur, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I hope uh, everyone's doing well in Calgary. Yeah, well, as, as best we can, kind of like everybody else. Um, yeah. In, in terms of kind of big picture here, Professor, I mean, you know, as I say, we're, we're sort of learning as we go here and, and trying to make sense of what we're, we're seeing and hearing about on a daily basis. What, what are you watching for? What, what kind of trend lines and, and data points uh, at this point seem most, most relevant from your view? So there's a, a couple of ways to think about this. So I think for your listenership, they'd be most important uh, to focus on what's happening in Canada, what's happening in Alberta, what's happening in Calgary. And fortunately, we're mobilizing tools that give us almost real-time uh, insight into how uh, that curve is uh, performing and how it's growing. Uh, so the daily case counts, and there's a group of uh, students that are uh, at the University of Toronto that have actually just created a tool that allows you to see how the uh, pandemic is uh, progressing through Canada. There's also tools that allow you to see how it's progressing around the world. And every uh, jurisdiction is kind of at a different point of inflection of that upward movement of the curve. And so from those who are further ahead of us, uh, we can learn and the data sharing is occurring. One of the good things, uh, you know, there are some 
some silver linings in this uh, pandemic, and one of them has been the absolute willingness of all public health uh, 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 professionals and units around the world to share their information, and also on the clinical side to uh, share what's happening inside the hospitals so that those who are waiting for it to come uh, can be as best prepared as possible. So I think in Canada, uh, we are early on in the uptick of cases, and uh, we should expect now, this is the important point to emphasize, curve flattening doesn't happen overnight. So there's a certain momentum of transmission in the community that we're hoping the physical distancing uh, measures uh, will dampen. But you will expect, even, even if they're working, we'll still see an upswing uh, before we start to see uh, any effect or any flattening of that curve. Yeah, in terms of measuring the impact of, of some of the measures we've implemented, and, and that's an important point, right, because there, there's that lag. It's going to take probably until sometime next week at the earliest to, to gauge how successful our, our measures have been. Yeah, and, and next week would be optimistic to be honest. I think we are looking at a good two to three week window uh, before we have a good sense of uh, how much transmission is uh, occurring. Uh, because anybody who has uh, watched what's happening in Italy and in Spain in particular knows exactly what it would be like for a virus to get loose in your community. Right. Somebody you know somebody you love will be badly affected because we have a similar population structure in Canada to Italy. We have, you know, older populations, but we also have, unlike China, a higher burden of chronic disease in the population. And that starts in our third and fourth decade. The other thing I research is multimorbidity, which is the co-occurrence of two or more diseases in one individual. And that's the rule now in Canada, not the exception. And that's because we're living longer, uh, and uh, as we age, we accumulate more chronic conditions. So it's not just the elderly who are at risk. It's people in their fourth, fifth, and sixth decades who have, you know, diabetes, hypertension, uh, coronary artery disease. And if this virus gets loose into the community with that many vulnerable people, uh, without these measures, we'll be looking at something very similar to what we've been seeing happening in Italy and Spain, which would be most unfortunate. If we have the opportunity and window to prevent it, we must act to do so. Well, New York as well, as seems to yeah, be in that New kind York of a situation. Yeah. You know, it's troubling too. And, you know, this this is, I mean, it's it's a tricky virus because there are a lot of people who will be completely asymptomatic. There, there are a lot of people who will have very mild symptoms. But, yeah. you know, what's concerning in New York, they're saying about a quarter of the people hospitalized are between 18 and 49. The, the CDC said last week about 38 percent of yep. people hospitalized were between 20 and 54. So yep. it, it can have serious impacts, and it's not just for for the elderly or those with underlying conditions. Absolutely, and I uh, and and that is why it's a serious threat to the health and well-being of communities. And we're learning because we didn't see that kind of, you know, and that's, again, the virtue of rapid sharing of information and data. So the one thing I would caution people is not to form 
too much of a fixed idea about how this virus is going to behave because we're still learning. And if we start to think, oh, it's going to do X and Y, uh, it may not behave according to uh, what our expectations are. So we need to be patient, we need to be nimble, uh, and we need to share information. But most of all, we do have a civic obligation uh, to uphold those uh, public health measures that have been put in place. I know it's deeply inconveniencing to each and every one of us, but it really is our only choice and only chance to bring this under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there, there's a lot of speculation around what best case scenarios look like, what worst case scenarios look like, and there there've been a lot of uh, dueling commentaries in in some medical and, and scientific yeah, journals. It's been an outbreak of punditry. <laughs> yeah, there there certainly has. And you know, the the question of do we have good data? Do we know if we're overreacting, underreacting? I mean, how how do you come at those questions? So. Um, Again, this is where very careful attention to the data and being as responsive as possible to it as it comes in. So we're right now relying upon modeling. So models are kind of, you know, all models are wrong, but some are better at being wrong than others because a model by definition is making simplifying assumptions to make calculations about the behavior of the epidemic. Um, So I think we need to be very cautious about over and under-interpreting the models. So the data, we we are getting a greater purchase on how this virus behaves in communities with real data, right? So the data that, of the experience from uh, New York, Spain, Italy is real data. That's not models, right? That's actually what happened. X number of people became ill, Y number of people were hospitalized, Z number of people were in, in, intubated and in the intensive care beyond the capacity of those systems to manage, and people are dying. That is fact. There is no modeling assumptions underlying that. So we need to take the, so the worst case present scenario would be planning for and being able to respond to an Italy-like surge. Hopefully we won't see that. In terms of when we're going to be able to uh, lessen the restrictions, I can assure you uh, that public health uh, leaders have no desire to prolong uh, these uh, restrictions any longer than are absolutely required to bring the outbreak under control. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly a danger, too, in, in acting too fast if we end up loosening the restrictions and then we have to suddenly reapply them right away again. And we, yep. we don't want to be in that kind of back and forth situation. What, once we start to emerge out of this, how, how important is, is data, right? There, there are a lot of calls uh, for, for way more testing. Testing and tracing is a way of really understanding the, the situation, allowing people to kind of resume some normalcy. How, how important is that going to be in your view? So after the fact, once this is all settled down, and I'm hoping they're uh, starting this process in in, in Wuhan, uh, we need to do what are called zero surveys uh, to look at the antibody response to actually determine the true prevalence of illness. Uh, so there's been some concern of whether what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg, and as you were alluding to, many people with mild to no symptoms, but the only way to know that is to actually do 
surveys of people, collect blood, check their antibodies, and do symptom surveys with them. And those are large population-based. And as soon as we get some information and a, and a methodology to do that, we can do the same here. Uh, it's going to be a bit difficult to do in real time because we're resource-constrained, right? We don't have enough uh, swabs to do all the testing that we'd like to do. And virtually every warm body that would be able to do this kind of work is involved in frontline response. So we do have undercapacity in public health. Uh, that's been a perennial problem. Uh, public health is the one sector of the system that we like to uh, make cuts to because most of the time we don't notice the work that it's being done unless you have an outbreak or your water system falls down or, you know, uh, listeria gets into your food system. Um, so we've put public health in place to work. It's kind of like your antivirus software or your uh, operating system on your computer, you take for granted that it's working and doing the work that it's doing. Um, and then you say, ah, oh, you know, I don't need to pay for this antivirus protection. I'll right. delete it. And then, you know, oh my God, look, I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've been fished to death on my uh, computer. So we need to invest in and respect and promote public health. Yeah. You know, when you look back at SARS, and I mean, maybe in a way, you know, that, that SARS went away, we, we were fortunate, obviously, but uh, at the same time, maybe we didn't learn as, as much as we needed to. I, I saw, I think it was Dr. Anthony Fauci, in fact, who, who lamented the fact that we kind of gave up on, on a SARS vaccine because we didn't deem it necessary. We yeah. would have been a lot further ahead if, if we had done so. Where, where were there some missed opportunities in better understanding that virus and in, in preparing for this one? So uh, I, I will say we had an abundance of learning from SARS. We just didn't maybe necessarily take all of the recommendations and steps that were made. So we had three major commissions of inquiry after SARS. We had the Naylor report, which, uh, you know, there were very tangible uh, outcomes from that. We had the Public Health Agency of Canada created with a chief public health officer of Canada. Uh, we had, uh, you know, investments in Ontario, at least, with the creation of public Public Health Ontario, which is kind of like a CDC technical uh, support agency for public health. Um, we had the Walker Commission report and the Campbell Commission report. There was an abundance of learning, um, but uh, this is where I get a little uh, grumpy uh, as a veteran of this. Since 2003, we've had seven major outbreaks of viral diseases, uh, six of them zoonotic infections. So this is the third coronavirus. We've had a MERS outbreak. Uh, um, we've had uh, two major Ebola outbreaks, in uh, one in West Africa and one in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and people are saying, oh, you know, how, how is it that viruses make, are so destructive to communities? Well, uh, if you lived in West Africa, you would know. Uh, and again, you know, if uh, the impact of HIV, another major virus uh, outbreak over the last uh, 20 years, uh, Zika virus and an H1N1 pandemic in 2009. So since 2003, seven major viral outbreaks, four of which were declared public health emergencies of international concern. And yet when Corona and, you know, people have been predicting this type of pandemic, and many of us have been working on pandemic preparedness for decades, we all knew this was going to happen at some time. We all just hoped it wouldn't happen in our lifetimes. Well, 
surprise, surprise, here it is. And if they're happening on average about every three years, we should be thinking about whether we're going to be, you know, no more wake-up calls, no more learning lessons, time to, after this and during this, to make the systematic changes required to ensure that we are uh, prepared to respond uh, in a way that preserves life and uh, preserves the economy. Yeah, some great points. Uh, some great insight as well. We'll leave it there. Professor Upshur, thanks so much for your time here today. Really appreciate it. Good luck, this. everybody. Be well. Take care. Keep sane and wash your hands and practice uh, physical distancing. Absolutely. Thanks again. Right. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Ross uh, Upshur, the University of Toronto. Uh, so some interesting insights. He's a public health expert, a physician, uh, also uh, studies the ethics and the history uh, around uh, global health emergencies. So some interesting points from him uh, regarding this whole situation. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.